welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm Timothy Neal, Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, David Giles, Lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University. Today we're speaking with Chris Shaw, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Auckland. Chris's main research interests lie in the interface between politics and anthropology, particularly the anthropology of policy, Europe, and the ethnography of organizations. His most recent book, co-edited with Susan Wright, is Death of the Public University, Uncertain Futures for Universities in the Knowledge Economy, published by Bergen Press this year. Also joining us in this episode is Jill Blackmore, Alfred Deakin Professor in the School of Arts and Education. So, Chris, how did you become interested in anthropology? Oh, hello, Sam. Um, I think I got interested in anthropology like, like many anthropologists. I, I stumbled upon it. Um, I was first uh, a student at the university, where was I? I was at Manchester University, doing, oh, sorry, Birmingham University, doing politics and modern history and found it utterly boring and dropped out and uh, decided I wanted to go back to university to do something and um, hit upon this subject that I'd never heard of before called anthropology, study of you know peoples and cultures and humanity and it, that kind of appealed to my wide set of interests and that was it really. I think once I got into the subject I realised quite soon that this is it, this is the subject for me. I, I did a book a couple of years ago, um, an edited book with a colleague of mine called uh, Susanna Trinker and it was called Up Close and Personal uh, Accounts of the Works and Lives of Anthropologists and my, my friend and colleague Sue Wright put it really well, she said that when she discovered anthropology it was like slipping into a warm hot bath, you know, you felt, <laughs> you relaxed into it, you thought yeah this is exactly mm why I love this discipline and I think one of the reasons why a lot of us um, took to anthropology um, it's partly that it's it's quite empowering it's about trying to make sense of your own culture but through the the vehicle of, of understanding other worlds and other people's worlds and it's also empowering because unlike if you do law or medicine you you don't really have license to to have an opinion until you you know got your PhD or become a practicing professional whereas in anthropology it does matter, your opinion, your view at an early age. And I think David and I were having this conversation earlier on about the anthropologist. In some ways, you fall into it as a result of your own background. And my background, yeah, I think I, I hit upon anthropology at quite an early age. And it was um, probably as a result of class differences. So I, I grew up in London. Uh, I had middle-class intellectual parents. They both been to university. My, my dad was a, a Labour MP uh, and my mum was a, a, a doctor. Um, and yet, because they were both socialists, they sent all, all four of us kids to um, inner London comprehensive school. So I went to this really quite rough uh, school, all-boys school in, in, in Wandsworth, called Wandsworth Comprehensive. Mm. And um, it was kind of strange because at school it, it was normal to talk with a South London accent and, and you mm -hmm. actually made sure that you, you didn't speak with words with more than two or three syllables if you could <laughs> get away with it. Otherwise, you know, you were a, a, a target and a sitting duck because... Well, you, you sound mm -hmm. posh, mate. 
so you, I had this kind of schizophrenic way of talking. Uh, uh, I, I'd never read Basil Bernstein at that time, but you know, restricted and elaborated codes. And, and at home, we talked about politics, current affairs, and we had books. You know, wall to ceiling books, but at school it was like you, you had to pretend that you were anti intellectual uh, and, and be sort of rough and one, one of the gang. And, mm. and it was only, I, I wasn't even aware that I was doing that. So, but that, I think that tricked it. And I realised that in Britain, class is culture. I mean, mm. That cultural difference was really quite paramount to me at that age. But you were um, almost acquiring skills at a young age of shifting between those. Yeah. Learning how to translate. Learning how to translate, learning how to be a bit chameleon, or realizing that you've got different sides to your personality. And, and I, mean, I, I think when I, so when I first did anthropology, I, I, I got fascinated by Italy, and I went and uh, did field work in, in Italy and lived there for about three years. And, and I, I realized that I, I didn't speak Italian before I went there, uh, but I learned Italian. And there was something about. Uh, my friends used to say to say, when you start talking in Italian, you, you suddenly start throwing your arms around, and, you, and, and your voice gets louder, and you become, you know, gesticulate more, and it's like it, it gives you license to be somebody else, and, and that's quite interesting. What we do? Do you, since your early anthropological skills came from an educational environment, and you work in an educational environment now, do you still have to use those skills when you're doing your current research? Do you still have to code switch? Yeah, I think you do a bit. Um, I mean, most of my work as an anthropologist has been slightly different from what the, the stereotype of mainstream anthropology is. Most people assume, oh, oh you're a an social anthropologist. Does that mean you, you work with you know, peripheral, marginal, tribal peoples or um, you, know, you wear, wear your pith helmet and go and study <laughs> the natives in, in somewhere in the forest of Borneo? Uh, whereas the anthropology that always appealed to me, because I suppose because I've always been interested in politics, was it's what Laura Nader would have described as studying up, you know, looking at the hidden hierarchies, the, the insurance companies, the banks, the organisations, and political parties. I mean, my dad was, you know, quite a, a, a socialist uh, thinker, so I, I mean, it's no coincidence I went off to, to to Italy to study the Italian Communist Party as my. PhD subject and I was fascinated in that so yeah code shifting for sure I, I did a field work for many years I worked on the European the creation of the European civil service in Brussels the, the, the Eurocrats and that was strange because I as you can probably see when well, you can't see on a peg podcast but I'm not exactly uh, well dressed uh, none of us are wearing suits and ties but going into the field where you had to wear a sharp suit and a tie and, and look you know look dapper that was a, a bit of code shifting, I suppose. Mm. Well, I'm just really interested, uh, coming from an education background myself, teachers and all the rest of it, um, both my parents, and, uh, and I've never really thought of the notion of anthropology as a study of organisations in quite the same way as you've described it. I mean, one always has the particular traditional image of the anthropologist, as you said, out looking at others elsewhere. Um, and I'm also interested in the sociology, uh, the policy uh, idea, uh, policy idea of it, because I mean I also have a policy sociology background, so I'm quite fascinated about what you see anthropology offers in that area, so both the organisational and the policy areas. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's um, so the turn to the study of policy is, is something mm. relatively new in, in anthropology. Thought, we're yeah, we're going to talk yeah. about this mm. a, a bit tomorrow. That, I mean. You know, anthropologists worked inside policy frameworks. They worked with policymakers, but they never made 
policy and policy making yes. a subject yes. of anthropological research in its own right, and that that's relatively recently. And uh, mm-hmm. and I suppose uh, uh, Sue and I and others have been part of that. But I mean, if you ask the question, well, what what can anthropology bring to the study of public policy? And I'd say a lot, a, a great deal. I mean, when you think about what traditional mainstream policy studies entails, it's very much it came out of the post-war high modernist uh, period with all those assumptions that policy was a, a scientific process it's steeped in positivistic assumptions mm-hmm. neat models about the policy cycle and how you start with an idea and initiative you start with the legislation you have street level bureaucrats who translate it and then you mm-hmm. adapt it and apply it and then you have a, a nice feedback policy loop cycle. yeah so it's the problem with that traditional approach to policy is it's teleological, it assumes policy is a neat and tidy process, and it, it's the rational actor applied to this policy sphere. And anthropology uh, complicates all of that. It, it shows that policy is a messy process, that it has multiple actors. Um, I mean, one of the things, if you wanted to put it in, in more sort of contemporary theoretical terms, uh, that people in science and technology studies would, would like or, or come on and to law. You could say that policy is an act and mm. policy, policies have, have agency. They, they do things that were not anticipated. They move in unanticipated directions. Once you create a policy framework, they, they, policies have complicated lives of their own that defy the intentions of their creators. They're, I'll call it the Frankenstein effect, you know, the the, the monster that you unleash leaps forward and and causes havoc in the world, or not necessarily havoc, but it can do move in interesting directions. But um, but look, stepping back, you could say, well, why didn't anthropologists study policy in the past? Yes, yes, exactly. It's a field of human activity like any other. Mm. Um, It involves whole sets of relations. Policies create these new frameworks, they create whole worlds. Um, and I think you could say that, well, in, like many areas of, 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 of traditional disciplinary study, policy was one of those blind spots. Like in the past, it was well, in, in education, it was totally blind spot until the new policy sociology virtually came out during the 1980s, 90s, and it's just now a major field of study. But it was late 1980s, early 1990s, it really had emerged. So the, what do you think was happening at that time? that caused, obviously, yours was around a similar time, a bit later? Well, my own, I mean, I can, I can only sort of relate it back to my own sort of personal experience. I, I first met Sue Wright in, I think it was about 1989, mm-hmm. and there was a group called BASAP. It was called the British Association for Anthropology and Policy and Practice. Mm-hmm. And it was this, there was, we were producing in the UK masses of PhD students in anthropology who were never going to get jobs in universities. Yes. And, and yet they felt this kind of strong sense of disciplinary identity. You know, they thought, well, I, I may be working in nursing or healthcare or, or local government or legal services, but I still feel an anthropologist. Mm. And so this, I joined this organisation and uh, Sue was the chair and I became the, uh, the editor of the newsletter, which I turned into a journal called Anthropology in Action. Um, and at that time, we, I remember at the time when I was editing this journal, I wanted to bring... I thought a lot of anthropology is really dull and boring and it, we, we need to bring a more critical perspective to this. And so we started to think through policy and, and think, well, how can, you, how can you 
study policy as an anthropological phenomenon. And thought, well, yeah, it's it's very much works like symbols, condensed mm. symbols. Okay. You know, they're, they're ambiguous, they're packed. It's, it's the, the linguistic, linguistic aspect to as them. Text, mm. text, but also context. Yeah, the, the whole thing. It produces but, particular policies at particular times. Mm. And, and Foucault was mm. very big at this time, so we tended to frame things in terms mm. of. So policy is like a is a discourse of power. Mm. It, it's a constellation of knowledge power mm. that, that serves as a, a legitimating mm. narrative. Mm. I mean, heaven help you if you go against the company policy. Mm. Mm. And yet, well, I mean, as feminists, we used to always argue the case around the, the, um, the notion of um, policy as a type of, um, as you said, uh, symbolic violence in a way. Yeah, equal opportunity policy is like symbolic violence mm. <laughs> because it never is actually put in, enacted <laughs> in terms of what it claims to do and say. But it is astonishing how when something has the moniker of mm. this is the policy, mm. it has this huge weight of authority behind it, even if it's really arbitrary and false. Mm. Like you see a sign saying, polite notice, you know, no parking, and you're not sure if it's polite or police, mm. uh, but people, or, mm. or keep mm. off the grass. You say, mm. this is the You say, well, whose policy? Mm. Mm. But it can serve as a, a language for people who do want to enact it. Yeah. It provides a language, an authoritative language for people. Mm. Well, in higher education. In allocation of values and, yeah. Yeah, vice-chancellors will say, this is the policy and that's what we're sticking to. Mm. Mm. Almost like end of story, closed discussion, that's it. Mm. Policy has been announced, you will obey and mm. step into line. So when you're doing the ethnography of, of policy, you don't just go to the boardroom. You don't, you don't just have to put on a suit. No, I think that's, that's it. that was one of the critiques of, of the traditional policy studies. Mm. There aren't these sort of this simple hierarchy, uh, mm. and that you know policy um, involves a, a, a complicated assemblage of different institutions, ideas, and actors that get rearranged in mm. complicated way. And that, in a way, that, that's partly why I love the idea of the anthropology of policy because. Not only did it give you license to look at power and, and to trace these connections, but it also provided a method and a methodology. You could say, well, I mean, we, we're all familiar with um, the, the, the Marcus phrase about follow that, um, the idea of, of conducting multi-sided ethnography. And, and, and Marcus talks about, well, you know, you should adopt the follow that approach, follow that metaphor, follow that. Well, Equally, follow that policy mm. and, and see where it goes and how it connects uh, and how it creates this sort of spider's web of connections at the heart, sometimes at the centre of which there is power, sometimes there is no centre. That's right. Mm. 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 Uh, and so our listeners uh, won't yet know your more recent work specifically on the university and how policy moves through the university. Uh, it doesn't. Right. <laughs> Um, so I wonder, I wonder if you can tell us how policy is is plugged into this thing called the knowledge economy uh, and what the knowledge economy is. And well, I'm looking at Jill here as her eyes roll over when she hears the phrase <laughs> knowledge economy. Do you want me to answer that? Okay. Well, I believe. I mean, it's often the, the, the phrase "knowledge," global knowledge economy, is sometimes attributed to Peter Drucker, mm. um, you know, from management studies back in the nineteen sixties. Um, but 
What I think happened, it, was, it wasn't until the 1990s that it got really taken up ICD. by the OECD. Yes. Yeah, and, <laughs> the nature of policy. And was it Robert Reich who was the yes. Minister of Labour under Bill Clinton? And they mm. popularised this. But um, So the idea is, basic idea is that knowledge has become the key driver of productivity and economic growth in, in the sort of dynamic modern economies that are characterised the OECD. And it draws heavily on ideas about a new economic theory, the emerging information society, uh, the skills that underpin the learning economy, all these cliches, and the knowledge networks needed to create national innovation systems. Um, and that apparently, according to this theory, the pathway to, to generating economic wealth and prosperity lay in combining technology with the knowledge that human beings um, embody, i.e. human capital. And um, I actually found, when, when you asked me, you, when you told me you were going to ask me a question about the global knowledge economy, I found this report from the OECD from 1996. And there's a, a line in this. They, they talk about how we've got to bring together not human capital, technology and science. And this is how they narrated it. The science system, essentially public research laboratories and institutes of higher education carries out key functions in the knowledge-based economy, including knowledge production, transmission, and transfer. But the OECD science system is facing the challenge of reconciling its traditional functions of producing new knowledge through basic research and educating new generations of scientists and engineers with its newer role of collaborating with industry in transfer of knowledge and technology. Research institutes and academia increasingly have industrial partners for financial as well as innovative purposes, but must combine this with their essential role in more generic research and education. I think that really sums up the whole thrust. I mean, and this idea that partnering up with industry, mm. um, the instrumental view that knowledge mm. must serve as a driver of the economy, right. uh, these are the kind of the imperatives that underpin this. And mm. sometimes they throw in the little phrase, oh, it's about you know, wealth creation and well-being, but well-being doesn't get much of a look. Mm. You know? And um, it's sort of embedded in a lot of neoliberal policies, isn't it, really, in the sense of translation and... You know, the instrumentalist view about knowledge. Yeah. Mm. I mean, when you beg the, ask the question, well, what exactly, what knowledge are we mm. talking about? Mm. And, it's, it, and it gets translated as skills, uh, STEM subject knowledge. Mm. But basically, knowledge that can be converted into the currency commodified. of a commodity. Yeah. Commodified, yeah. Mm. And STEM subjects seem to be better at doing that than... Anthropology. Anthropology, although <laughs> paradoxically, at my university, no, apparently at my university, mm. education, mm. although they keep this well hidden, uh, the vice chancellor does, but education has produced more wealth through its innovative uh, initiatives. Uh, people like mm. John Hattie and, uh, and these sort of programs of learning and software. I mean, <laughs> you may laugh, but they do generate a lot mm. of money. I know they do, yes. But the myth of the not global knowledge mm. economy is that actually. The only subject matters that really matter are, are the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and medicine, because this is where the future prosperity of our country lies. So kind of linking a couple of things there, let's think about um, follow the thing, yeah. right? These, uh, if, if, uh, these, if the knowledge economy turns knowledge into a commodity, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit maybe about what the commodity chain 
we might we might think of here, or how is the global knowledge economy kind of articulated with other parts of the economy, and how is it geographically distributed? You know, places that are we going to be ending up outsourcing marketing to distributed actors through Amazon or conglomerates will sponsor our massive online-only courses, these MOOCs that have uh, been hailed as the saviour of, uh, of the knowledge economy. Yes, is the immediate answer. MIT here is coming from India as we speak. <laughs> I mean, it is very sort of germane to the, the, the era of Trump and Brexit. Oh. That, you know, these were reactions almost against the, the, the globalization imperatives and the and the austerity that they, they've brought with them and and outsourcing uh, privatization deregulation opening up markets to non-traditional service providers recasting universities as as basically uh, you know industries that produce products uh, that can be quantified and marketized these are all Features of it, and I, I think with higher education, where, where we see this most most palpably is in the the the, the reclassification of, of, high, of the whole of higher education mm-hmm. as sort of education business, as a, you know, universities PLC. Or okay. uh, the, the, the phrase that really turned my head when I first heard this was one that's used a lot in New Zealand and Australia, mm-hmm. and it's called export education. Mm-hmm. Which I'd never heard that phrase before. It wasn't very popular in the UK, um, but when when I you know scratched the surface, well, what is export education? And it is simply this seventeen billion dollars for Australian economy. Yeah, and apparently mm. generates more foreign um, earnings than the, the wine industry. We're second, second next to uh, yeah. yeah, second in Australia, second or third. Yeah. In New Zealand, it's the fourth. Yeah, um, and it is this relentless pursuit of mm. you know the global market in international students and I think the English speaking countries uh, placed the huge premium on because of the um, well partly the, the tradition that they're, they're trading on a, on a well honed reputation of, of the quality of the education in these institutions in these countries but also on the fact that the, the, the PhD students or uh, want to learn English and, uh, and the, the kind of the reputational do you think this is going to keep on going like that, though? I mean, in terms of, like, we are now educating to our international students, but also China, India, lots of other countries, Chile, are all investing incredibly in higher education. Yeah, I reckon that... So how long will this capacity last? It, the days are numbered. Uh, it, it does remind me of the sort of the, you know, like the, a parallel is a sort of the, you know, the cod fishing off the <laughs> Newfoundland. You know, <clears throat> the, the supply will be exhausted. Or, as you say, India, um, China, other countries, Singapore, Singapore will initiate their own programs and they will try to capture those global markets. And as you know, the reputation of those institutions increases, they all, and the, the funds that they have available. They, it will be a magnet for... Well, already, I know from research I do on global employability that, that they already have those institutions. It's just that they have more students that can't get into it, and they're the ones that come to us. Right. We get the second mm. tier. Mm. We don't get the top tier. They go to their own institutions in India and China. So it's more the, the massification aspect mm. that's keeping us going. Well, I, and I think they, they, well, I imagine that. Yeah. They, well, you're probably a better person to comment on this than me. But I imagine one of their strategies will be to start poaching academics from 
Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. UK, America to to set up their own programs. They've got the funds. Well, they've just been in your own home. China has a policy to fund their being your own home that's been funded, that have been educated in the USA. Yeah, that's how they do it. They don't. They don't want us back. We don't. They don't want us. They want their own who feel loyal to their own country. So how much of that? Uh, how much of that money flows into? Uh, into the country through institutions, state institutions, and how much it flows in, into private pockets? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And how they calculate these enormous, the, how they come to arrive at these figures about what this industry uh, represents for the national economy is sort of slightly beyond me. I mean, I think that's. They try to do an aggregate effect of having these students in here. <clears throat> Some of the providers, though, and, and this has came up in a, a controversy in New Zealand just two weeks ago with a, a report published by the um, commission by the Tertiary Education Union that showed uh, that a lot of the small for-profit providers, um, the staff in there, were, uh, were, were being bullied yeah. to um, make sure that the 80% of their students passed and so we're lowering, lowering their standards and their threshold. Now, this was the claim, anyway, it, it caused... We've had a huge huge issue here in Australia with the vet sectors for that, yes. Mm. It raises the issue of quality, and I wanted to get into the quality discussion yeah, and because, the audit culture stuff. And, yeah. yeah. So, so we're, I mean, we're, if we're thinking yeah. of education as a commodity, then this commodity is in some ways being been. devalued. Yes. Mm. Uh, as, as you know, as dubious as the idea of education being a commodity is, yeah. the current system seems to devalue that commodity, while also producing. I mean, something we haven't talked about uh, is ballooning student debt, yeah. which, as a policy item, disappears and reappears strategically. You know, governments seem to want to say, "Oh, we're still, you know, we've got a booming tertiary sector," and then another in other conversations would say, "Oh, we've got to do something about this massive student debt." It is one of the the most grotesque aspects of the contradictions of our system that the uh, students are being encouraged to take on reckless levels of debt in a way that is very reminiscent of the subprime mortgage scandal leading to the global financial crisis. You know, governments would not be, you know, we would be disciplined not to do that, and yet we seem to think that it's it's okay to saddle our, the next generation, the future mm. of our country, uh, with these e- enormous burdens of debt, which they'll be very lucky if they manage to pay it off in their lifetime. Or if they do, it will be through going overseas mm. to lucrative jobs um, where they can uh, earn a substantial amount to be able to cover that debt. We have a new mm. category of individual in New Zealand, the, the, the debt Offender who uh, you know the exiles. Uh, the government announced a few years ago that it was worried that it was, the return uh, was diminishing and that there were persistent uh, students who were not de- you know defaulting who'd gone overseas. And a policy was announced that they would be empowered to make arrests at the border for people coming home to visit mum and We are doing the same thing just mm. this week or so, wasn't that a similar policy they talk about, not arrests, but certainly trying to get the debt back, uh, the repayment back from those who are overseas. In the United Kingdom, uh, which raised student fees by, as you know, 300%, it went from 3,000 to 9,000. Uh, the book by Andrew McGivigan shows that <clears throat> actually the, the net return to, to, the, to the nation, to the country, now 
is less than the amount uh, that is being spent to, to enable students to borrow this debt. I, they're mm. anticipating that either students will not be earning enough in their future careers or you, you can only pay it when you reach a threshold. Um, and so the whole policy seems to have been an absolute disaster. I mean, it brings up the, the other paradox around we're having these processes of massification and on the other hand, issues around quality and um, and how the and how the uh, the institution itself is trying to address issues around quality, in terms of improved audits, uh, the audit culture, and its claims around what does that do? So, what does this audit culture do? Does it actually make us more accountable? Does it produce quality? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that, it, the, the term audit culture and audit society, it's a sort of, um, the concept sort of coined by anthropologists and sociologists to, I think it was, it was an attempt to describe um, the, the extent to which auditing and accountancy are increasingly influencing society. Um, and it's over the last 20 years, what we've seen is a massive growth in the application of of the principles and the practices of, of financial accounting and evidence most notably in the explosion of performance measurement indicators, rankings, productivity surveys, new technologies of scrutiny and control uh, in, in the workplace and elsewhere. So I think it may seem a, a, an over-the-top claim, but you could say today we are all auditees and we, as a result we've had to mm-hmm. take on, embody the mentality and the subjectivity of the auditee. We are all, in some point in our life, subject to this. And so, yeah, yeah. in a classic Foucauldian sense, auditing is, is, is a new form or a type of governmentality. Mm. It's individualising and totalising at the same time. And it, it, but it, I think what's it really interesting, I mean, from our perspective, is the way in which it, it is also linked to projects of, of sort of financialization. Because when you think mm-hmm. about it, auditing, I mean, what the hell is auditing? It, it comes out of the tradition of bookkeeping. That's right. mm-hmm. Simply, you know, looking, check the books to see an audit from the Italian, audire, the Latin to hear. It's about a hearing. It's about can we guarantee the reliability of these accounts? And what, what's happened is that this idea, this crude basic instrument of financial verification to enable uh, us to have confidence and trust in the books has shifted from a, a principle of financial accountancy to a mechanism of management in organisations. It, it's like a virus or, or a, sort of a, a, a plague ship that's you know, been cut from its moorings and has drifted across the lake onto the night. And it's colonised all these professions where you're now required to... Um, one, I know that one of the questions that's often asked is so... Is this a good or bad thing? You know, in the sense, this is all about. It's all done in the name of transparency. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, the, your typical politician or economist would say, "Well, I think it's perfectly right and proper that people who spend public money are held to account, and we demand, you know, ethically, morally, we demand value for money, etc." Uh, but what are the effects of this ramping up of auditing? And one of the effects, of course, is, is the first casualty is trust. You, you're literally replacing professional trust with 
monitoring, scrutiny and inspection. Mm. What effect does that have? I, I don't know about you, but I know that when I feel... <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a, um, uh, it's, it's good, good parts law writ large. As soon as a measure becomes uh, a yeah, target, yeah. it ceases to be a good measure. Exactly. Of course. Mm. Because of course. you, it, as a strategic actor, you work to game the target. And the issue, of course, is that when the measure is not even a good proxy for quality, then you have to fabricate to try mm. and meet the measure. Hmm. Which is because, which policy studies, because uh, or the anthropology yeah. of, mm-hmm. of policy actually exactly. helps us think about exactly. Mm. exactly. Yeah, mm. so it actually has the very opposite effect to that which it's was fine. intended. It, it leads to obscurity, occlusion. People will go time out of their way to be time intensive activity, invisible, illegible. You know, they don't want mm. to be scrutinised. Mm. Or we we do monitor our own behaviour when we feel that we're being surveyed. I mean, it's uh, we play to the target, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's in teaching, I know that teachers get, you know get utterly depressed at having to you know, turn their whole career into sort of machinery for getting people through exams. We well, have student evaluations that come through to that are very arbitrarily um, brought back to uh, to bear mm-hmm. upon the. The academic, regardless of whether they're statistically accurate or not. Um, yes, mm-hmm. they're, they're mobilised in youth. Bullying can come out of... Uh, I think there's a huge amount of what... I mean, I, I nearly think of the audit as a form of institutional bullying. Yes. Mm. Because it really does change your practices in ways that actually are counterproductive to what you think of the is the core work of your mm. relationship with students... Mm-hmm. Um, it intervenes with that relationship, that pedagogical relationship. It intervenes with your collegial relationships. It reminds me of something that I noticed when teaching. I was teaching in the US too, that because students have an enormous amount of debt there, uh, they're, they're, and debt is a disciplinary, mm. disciplining force in, yes. in itself, students would come in and, and demand to know almost dollar for dollar mm. what they were getting back from there. Yes, well, they do here too. Yeah. Well, because it's, uh, of the fees... Particularly, yeah. and so the measures that you're audited for become, mm. com, you know, completely divorced from what they're learning. Mm. You know, it's what, what will they, um, what will they, will they be able to get a job? You know, how much will they earn based on this thing that they're learning here? Um, so, I, I mean, I was wondering how audit culture, and you were starting to, to point in this direction mm. too, mm. how audit culture shapes the relationship between teacher and student, um, and how it sh- shapes the work that. Uh, teachers and academics do well I think one one of the ways it changes the nature of the relationship is it, it encourages individualism and calculation mm-hmm. um, now depending where you stand that could be a good thing mm-hmm. you'd say oh, we, we want responsibilized calculating individuals um, but it's uh, it, it, and in, an auditing is definitely a, a powerful instrument uh, in the hands of management and, and HR because mm-hmm. You can control the levers that incentivise, uh, and you can inspect and monitor to ensure that people are compliant in, insofar as you can. But <coughs> I, I hate to be too gloomy and powerful. I mean, we, like, this, this conversation is moving to a Kafka smiling. And I like to think that maybe um, 
audit at least has the potential to be other than the way it is being used? I mean, audit it, it is essentially just a technology, an instrument. It's not in itself intrinsically bad, is it? Right. No, it's how it's used. Like performance management is yeah. not intrinsically bad. And if you think... review. I mean, if you're interested in combating global poverty or, you know, rates of violence against women or, uh, you know, you, indicators and measurements and quantification and auditing can be good. We have democracy audits, environmental audits. Problem is that we choose to measure the wrong things and we make count the things that are countable but not the things that really count and matter because they are often intangible, like quality of education. You can't, you can't measure. You just end up with these daft proxies for it. Mm. Mm. That's right. Mm. Mm. Exactly. And how, uh, since we're, uh, you know, three anthropologists and an honorary anthropologist for the day. <laughs> I'm um, honoring lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> so how are anthropologists and, and anthropology students experiencing this? I think the students... Oh, experiencing it probably in a couple of ways. I mean, firstly, in uh, the sense that which they are being interpolated as cons- customers and consumers, uh, so, uh, and they are subject to almost like an information overload. You know, how do I choose my university? Says the anxious parent. Well, you you go on the measure of the quality, or, or you not, or the student experience. And now we have so many uh, auditing. Uh, Mechanisms that you've got a raft of measures you can choose from, but I think that you know you could say optimistically that universities are one of the last places in the workplace in the neoliberalized workplaces where there is still a kind of an ethic and an ethos that typically goes counter to that because most people who become academics uh, do so because they have a love of their discipline, love of their profession, they like teaching, and they usually like students, and so there is a kind of complicity and. The one thing that they haven't yet been able to do is to, or at least not in New Zealand, maybe not, in, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but is to control the content of what you teach and how you teach. At least there is a, a, a sphere of professionalism where administrators and bureaucrats... It's being eroded. It's being eroded. It's being eroded, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yes, I suppose, been, oh, I suppose the, the last question was... Um, how do we respond, especially in anthropology, but across the university? How do we uh, how do we push back when we're having our courses beginning to have our courses uh, content dictated for us, um, and the way that we mark and all that sort of thing? Uh, I, I think it is. In, I mean, somebody once said to me, and one of our deans, we were talking about academic freedom. You say, academic freedom is, is a duty, it's not just a, uh, a privilege. Uh, how do we respond? I, I think, yeah, we have to critique and challenge this. We have to push back. Ultimately, it's not going to be done at the level. I mean, you can subvert and, and challenge at the level of your own classroom, yeah. but to be effective, it's got to be done at a much at the level of national policy. Uh, we need governments that realise that universities can't be run like meat factories and uh, you know, export industry, uh, and that if we value the next generation, and uh, if we value the, if we think of universities as repositories of value, um, the kind of treasures, a bit like our museums and our art galleries, uh, then you know it, it requires a different mindset. But I don't Not know. Not a post truth mindset. <laughs> Not that one. No. <laughs> I don't know. How would you put it? I mean, that's the point. I mean, we are even getting beyond the legitimacy of the academy now, aren't we? 
there's no such thing as an expert. They don't need us anymore. Mm. But they do. In, yeah. They, well, they we know they, they do. No, but, but also they know that they do. I mean, they, periodically they, they survive on yeah. the... Of course, everybody survives on, on the expertise upon which mm. everything's built, but there seems to be a but capacity I think to... One thing that we can do, and I've noticed that, that many of us are, are overly compliant... I mean, I, I think Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, um, what was it? You know, it's in her kind of thing about, you know, about why she's a feminist because she didn't want to be uh, treated like a doormat. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. no, it, in a sense, you do it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that if you stand up and, and say no and challenge, this system can't work yes. without our acquiescence and our active compliance. We have to fill in these forms. We have to agree to be inspected. We have to be have our performance reviewed and fill in these things. So... I think little acts of, of subversion and resistance and, and pushing back and just to say... Just say no. Like, you know, there's mm. the advert for the drug dealer. And <laughs> just say no and, and push mm-hmm. him back or, or redirect the lens so that those who are requiring us to be accountable are themselves held to account. Let's come up with some yardsticks that say, rank my vice chancellor. Who is the, what, which <laughs> university has the best record for treating its staff and has the most positive... They never ask that. It's not part of the KPI. We need to change those. KPIs. I know we do. We need to put in being nice. <laughs> KPI. <laughs> be nice to your staff. <laughs> um... Just one follow-up question uh, about our students. To what extent they're, they're coming in, in in many ways far savvier than I was at their age and with access to a, a far wider range of information in many ways than just what they get through the university and they're integrating all of that. Mm. Um, what, what hope do you see in our students to challenge, surpass, uh, sidestep or culture? Well, I'm always a... An optimist in, a, you know, in the Gramscian sense, you know. Mm. What is it? Pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And when I see our students, I, I have huge admiration for them. I think they are terrific and they are saddling all kinds of burdens that I never had. I mean, I, my education was paid for by the state, all of it, every single bit, including my PhD mm. scholarship. So uh, I never graduated with that. Um, but I think it's important that we don't leave them with a, you know, like a, a wasteland. That you know, I mean, I'm in my fifties, uh, and I'm quite, quite conscious of the need to. I want to pay it back a bit, and I don't want to leave some desert, uh, a, you know, a, 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 a university in ruins, as the Bill Reddings put it. Uh, I'd much rather leave some sort of um, space where the virtues and the values that inspired academia for, for centuries can continue and I think it will I mean. Do you think it'll survive only for a few elite universities and the rest of this the rest of the current universities for the masses or I mean do you think there's going to be a new hierarchy I think if, if we carry on on the current trajectory then yes that is the model and that's what the pundits are predicting and that's what in a sense some of the the vested interests like El Salvier and and the the big educational corporations uh, are hoping Mm. for that they they benefit from this but there is a counter movement uh, and it it does link to you know the the emphasis on local initiatives on local universities Mm. uh, and and decentralizing and and getting rid of this and I'm kind of optimistic I want to be optimistic that there's 
you know, spaces of hope in, in, in there that we can, uh, we're not going to fall into. Actually, I think ultimately this, the current trajectory we're on is unsustainable. Mm. And it's not very, even in its own terms, it's kind of crude, crass economic rationale. It's mm. not very productive. And you say it's like, it's like our economy, we benefited the tiny percent who are, got their stakes invested in financial capital, capital and uh, everyone else seems to be suffering. So mm-hmm. uh, I'd rather we uh, carried out policies that helped the, the 97% who are not <laughs> benefiting doing so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably uh, an optimistic note is a good one to, to close on. <laughs> so thanks very much to Chris and Jill for, for joining us here at another uh, um, another podcast. And thanks to all our listeners for joining us here in Anthropology at Deakin. We've been speaking today with Chris Shaw from the University of Auckland, as well as Jill Blackmore from Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about Chris's work, you can find him online uh, at the University of Auckland. Uh, And if you'd like to learn more about anthropology, you can find us at blogs.deakin.edu.au slash anthropology. 